at Genesis 49, verse 29, but it's page 56 still, just like it says. I'll give you a second to find that. Wicked. Then he gave them these instructions. I'm about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave, in the cave in the field of Ephron the Hittite, the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre in Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite. There Abraham and his wife Sarah were buried. There Isaac and his wife Rebekah were buried. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob had finished giving instructions to his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. Joseph threw himself on his father and wept over him and kissed him. Then Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father Israel. So the physicians embalmed him, taking a full 40 days, for that was the time required for embalming and the Egyptians mourned him for 70 days. When the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, if I have found favor in your eyes, speak to Pharaoh for me. Tell him, my father made me swear an oath and said, I am about to die. Bury me in the tomb I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go up and bury my father, then I will return. Pharaoh said, go up and bury your father as he made you swear to do. So Joseph went up to bury his father. All Pharaoh's officials accompanied him, the dignitaries of his courts and all the dignitaries of Egypt. Besides all the members of Joseph's household and his brothers and those belonging to his father's household, only their children and their flocks and herds were left in Goshen. Chariots and horsemen also went up with him. It was a very large company. When they reached the threshing floor of Atad near the Jordan, they lamented loudly and bitterly, and there Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father. When the Canaanites who lived there saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, the Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. That is why they call that place near the Jordan Abel Mizraim. So Jacob's sons did as he had commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which Abraham had bought along with the field as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent words to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please, forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to Joseph, he wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family, 
He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. Also the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Thank you, Sean, very much indeed, and it's great to see you here this afternoon. Welcome to Trinity Church, Islington, and uh, my name is Jeremy, and I am 18,638 days old. If, uh, if you weren't here at the beginning, that won't mean too, too much to you. Uh, please do keep that open at page 56 as we finish our series uh, looking at this epic story of, of Joseph's life, which closes the book of Genesis right at the start of the Bible, the first book of the Bible. And um, uh, we're going to have a look at that last section, um, chapters 49 and 50, as we finish the series. Just to say, uh, if you've got a question on anything that I'm going to say today, um, or maybe something that you've been wondering as we've been going through the Joseph story, then on the back of the service sheet there's a QR code. You can just snap that with your camera and it'll take you to the, a page called Slido where you can submit a question and then it'll um, sort of come onto our um, homepage and then we'll have the chance to answer that a little bit later on. Please do make use of that. Uh, we've set aside a bit of time to answer your questions. No question is out of bounds. Good. Well, just as we begin, uh, once again, we're going to ask for God's help. So, shall we pray as we start? Let's pray. Father God, here we are, and we're holding uh, the treasure of your word in our hands. And, and I pray, Father, that once again, we'd, we'd recognize its very great preciousness and, and its ability to make us wise for salvation. So, I pray, Father, you'd sensitize our hearts to... Um, to understand what it's saying, even at this stage uh, in, in a long day. And I pray that we would allow your word to correct and rebuke and train and encourage us so that we, we grow more like Jesus. That's our prayer. And, uh, and that all the glory would go to you. We do ask these things in your name. Amen. Uh, well, the 6th of February... 1870 was a very tragic day for a guy called George Muller. That's his picture up on the screen, a guy called George Muller. That was the day that his wife died of rheumatic fever. It's a tragic, tragic day for him. They'd been married for 39 years and four months um, when she died. And uh, George Muller was famous. You might have heard of him. He was famous for, um, for founding a lot of orphanages. Uh, I think 10,000 orphans were cared for in the homes that he set up. Um, uh, but he was also famous for being a Christian. He's one of those sort of public Christian figures. And shortly after his wife died, he preached what he called a funeral sermon. Um, it's a difficult, difficult thing to do, isn't it? I, I was asked if I wanted to preach at my, on my dad's funeral, and I said, um, no, I didn't. It's a hard thing to do, isn't it? I think I didn't feel that I had the strength to do that. But George Muller did. And he preached from Psalm 119 and verse 68, just half a verse that says, you are good and you do good. That was his text at his wife's funeral. 
And he had three points. Uh, and, and here's what he said. Firstly, the Lord was good and did good in giving her to me. Talking about his wife. Second point, the Lord was good and did good in so long leaving her to me. 39 years. Point three, the Lord was good and did good in taking her from me. It's a courageous thing to say, isn't it? It's a courageous thing to say just after your wife's died. Here's what he prayed when she was unwell. He wrote down his prayer, and this is what he was praying when she was close to death. He said, yes, my father, my times with my darling wife are in your hands. You will do the very best thing for her and for me, whatever, uh, whether life or death. If it may be, raise up again, my precious wife. You are able to do it, though she is so ill. But howsoever you deal with me, only help me to continue to be perfectly satisfied in your holy will. It takes courage, doesn't it? Say that. But I would love that confidence. Wouldn't you love that confidence to know that, that, that God is good and he does good all the time through the, um, through the things that we enjoy and the things that we find very, very difficult. And I'm sure there's some people here today finding things extremely difficult. But that's the confidence that Joseph has in these closing chapters of the book of Genesis. In, in the face of uh, his dad's death, Jacob's his dad, also known as Israel, and then um, in the face of his own death, um, he has that incredible confidence that God is good and that he does good, even, even through the dark times and even through the evil things that have happened to him. And that's what he says. You remember his brothers have committed this terrible atrocity against him. And then they come to him in chapter 50, verse 20, Chapter 50, verse 20, and, and their dad's died, and they assume that he's going to get his own back. But Joseph looks back um, on a life that, it, on the face of it, has been ruined uh, by the evil that was committed against him. And he says this to his brothers. Chapter 50, verse 20. We flagged this up right at the beginning, and I think this is really the, one of the key moments in the whole of the Joseph story. And the book of Genesis 2, Genesis 50, verse 20. You intended to harm me. That was your intention. But God intended it for good. That was his intention. To accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. God is good and he does good. That was, that was the confidence that, that Joseph had. And his intention, I think, as we finish the book of Genesis is that we is that we would know in the face of evil or, or, or in the face of death that we can say God's got this he's got it well let's go through the final act then in, in this epic drama and we'll see what brings Joseph to that conclusion and we're going to be looking mainly at chapters 49 and, and, and 50 the last two chapters of the book of Genesis and here's the first thing that I think uh, the writer, Moses, we guess, uh, wants to leave in our minds. The first of three things that he wants to leave in, my, leave in, in our minds as we close the book of Genesis and, uh, and, and as we um, leave this afternoon um, living in God's world. Here's the first thing. Look to God's surprising choice. Look to God's surprising 
choice. So in fact, we, 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 could, um, uh, we could pick things up in chapter 48. Let's go back there uh, on page 54. And uh, uh, you'll see chapter 48, headed Manasseh and Ephraim. Let me tell you what's going on here. So um, Jacob is an old man, and his grandkids have come on a visit. And uh, verse 2, the nurse says in a loud voice, um, your son Joseph has come to you. You know, as, 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 as people sometimes say, and my children start to talk, me, talk to me in that voice now, actually, I've noticed that. And then um, and Jacob rallies his strength and he sits up in bed, and verse 2, and then as older people sometimes do, he starts talking about the past. So verse 3, Jacob, this old man, says to Joseph, God Almighty, that's... Um, that's a name in Hebrew, El Shaddai, uh, the, the name that sort of stresses the, the power and the might of God in the face of human weakness. Um, Jacob says to his son, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and there he blessed me. Uh, why does he start remembering that? Well, that's when Jacob had just taken the birthright from Esau. Do you remember that story? Um, he's got an older brother, but he takes the birthright from his older brother. And, and so, in God's purposes, the, the, the younger son becomes the chosen one, and, and the blessing that comes through him. That's what went on then. Um, and then what happens at the bedside in the nursing home is that history sort of repeats itself. It's, it's quite interesting. If you have a look down at chapter, chapter 48, have a look down at verse 14. Israel, that's Jacob, reaches out his right hand. The two grandkids are standing in front of him. He reaches out his right hand and puts it on Ephraim's head, though he was the young guy. And crossing his arms, he put his left hand on Manasseh's head, even though Manasseh was the firstborn. Okay. Um, the younger brother then becomes the chosen one. It's interesting, isn't it? History sort of repeats itself, and the, the blessing is going to come through him. And, and then in chapter 49, um, Jacob sort of calls the, calls the 12 sons into the nursing home. He sort of says, gather round, um, chapter 49, verse 1. And at this point, we're sort of expecting the unexpected, aren't we? I mean, who knows who's going to be blessed at this stage? And um, they've all checked in at the desk, and, and they've come into the, his room in the nursing home. Um, it's a little bit too warm, like it always tends to be in nursing homes. And... Um, and then Jacob starts. He starts talking to each of the sons, all 12 of them. He uh, starts with Reuben, choppy waters with Reuben. Simeon, Levi, the trigger happy twins. Uh, Issachar's a scrawny donkey. Okay. Um, verse 14. I don't know whether you ever think of people as being like animals, do you? Some people think that. They, they kind of... Think of their friends, and they sort of name an animal for each friend they think, think they're like. I don't know if anyone thinks I'm like a scrawny donkey. Don't tell me if you do. But then um, verse 8, chapter 49, verse 8, he gets to Judah. Okay, and J Judah's the guy who messed up dramatically back in chapter 38. Yeah. Have a look what he says to Judah. Verse 8, Judah, your brothers will praise you your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will 
bow down to you, you're a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son, like a lion. He crouches and lies down like a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? The scepter, that's a, do you know, a scepter is like a rod that, that singles you out for kingship. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from beneath his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nation shall be his. It's going to be a descendant, singular of Judah, who will reign. Look for God's surprising choice. Because Moses is writing this down for the, for the people of Israel, we, we assume, as, they, as they're on the way to the promised land. And he, and he wants that ringing in their ears. Look for God's surprising choice. Because they, they're going to look back and, they, and they'll know that, that God chose an, an unlikely king called, called Joseph and prepared him through suffering in prison, do you remember? And, uh, and through the suffering of slavery and prepared him to become the king of Egypt. And, and God chose him. Uh, that, was his, that was his plan. But when it comes to kingship, God's got this. He's got a plan. And he'll choose unlikely people. They're not to forget that as they travel to the, to the promised land. Because when Jesus comes, he's not going to be wearing a royal robe. He's the son of a carpenter. He's not going to be living in a palace. He's born in a shed. But God will say of him, this is my son. And he'll be called the Lion of Judah. That's his name. And his surprising throne is, is a wooden cross. And the blessing will come through him. He's God's chosen one. And that's why we meet, you see. We, 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 we come to Jesus. He is God's, he's God's chosen one. We... We don't come to church as some, some sort of form of, of Christian coaching. We're not here primarily to become better Christians. We're not here to upgrade our Christian lives or to raise our game. We're here to look to Jesus, to know him, to put our hands in his hands, to, to enjoy him together, to, to look to him, to treasure him as his church. Because he is the king who God has chosen. Uh, in the college where I trained, uh, they, they had a pulpit in the chapel. And inside the, the pulpit, there's a, there's a quote from John 12, 21. Um, and it says some, some, some words that are spoken um, as people try and approach Jesus in the, in the Gospels. Sir, we would like to see Jesus. That's what it says on the inside of the pulpit at Oak Hill. We would like to see Jesus. Jesus. And so we're to look to God's surprising choice. We're to interact with Jesus Christ. The blessing comes through him. He's, he's God's chosen king. And we live through him. Look to God's surprising choice. But not just that, as, as the book of Genesis comes to a close, because there's another thing that the story wants to fix in our minds before we close the book, and that's this, to identify with God's covenant people. You see, as, as, as we look to God's surprising king, so we identify with his people. Those two things go together. We, we belong to Jesus, and so we belong 
to his church. But see that first of all in the book of Genesis. Genesis 49, 29. Have a look at that. Um, it's become clear that Jacob's dying and um, the nurses have come in to make him comfortable now. And, um, but he won't settle yet because he's got one last request. Have a look at Genesis 49, 29. This is Jacob. Then he gave them these instructions. I'm about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in a cave in the field of Ephron the Hittite, the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre in Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite. There Abraham and his wife Sarah were buried. There Isaac and his wife Rebekah were buried. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave in it were bought from the Hittites. It's Jacob's last request. I mean, you'd sort of want to smooth his brow. I mean, the guy's dying. And, and you want to say to him, it's okay, Jacob, don't worry. Um, you don't need to worry about that anymore. Um, you're in Egypt now. You don't need some scrubby little field that you bought in some cash deal with some Hittite guy that you met a long time ago. That, that doesn't matter. We can give you a, a, a proper funeral here in Egypt. The strange thing is that Joseph says the same thing. Do you notice that at, at the end of chapter 50 or a similar thing anyway? Um, we fast forward 60 years between chapter 50, verse 21 and, and 22, and then Joseph's dying. Um, Joseph's dying now. So have a look down at chapter 50, verse 24. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. But God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of the out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Same guys. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. And you think, um, Joseph, don't worry about this. You've got a state funeral plan. I mean, you're the second in command in Egypt, and have you not seen the, the stuff in the British Museum? I mean, they'll look after you. Don't worry. Don't talk about all this messy bone stuff. Um, don't need to worry about that anymore. But Jacob and Joseph are identifying with God's people. See? God has already reunited this family. We've, we've, we've been learning about that through, through famine and through the tests that, that, that Joseph has set. This family has been reunited, but, but they know they've got a they've got to land somewhere else. They know that God has this chosen people. God's got this. He's, he's got a future for them, and his covenant belongs in a, in a scrubby field in another country, and they're to identify with that. Let's remember that they're part of God's people. A couple of weeks ago, um, I was walking down Oxford Street uh, on, a, on a Friday night. I was on a mission. I was, gonna, I, was, I was going in, I needed my one thing, and I was going to escape again. You don't want to get caught on Oxford Street on Friday night. But they, you know, the, the whole pavement was filled up with um, people ready to party, dressed up to the nines, all their shopping bags on, uh, on both arms. And um, there was a sort of hold up on the pavement. I thought, come on, guys, I've got to get through. Um, and... Uh, 
I, I sort of got a bit closer, and I saw maybe 10 middle-aged guys, and they were standing around in a circle, and they were singing. And I thought, oh, come on. Um, I got a bit closer, and I saw that one of them was holding some music. Um, and it was, it not only said at the top how deep the Father's love for us, um, next to it said, all souls lang in place. Uh, and these guys on a Friday night were standing on Oxford Street, and they were singing about Jesus. And I, um, I had to change my mind. You know, these, those are my people. They're my people. Far more so than the shoppers and people out to party. Those, those are my people. There are people. And sometimes God calls us to identify with our people. They might not always look terribly appealing. You know, sometimes our family will put pressure on us to spend time with them on a, on a Sunday afternoon. Um, or our boss will ask us to go into the office just to check that everything's all right over a weekend. Or our mates will ask us to play on the football team or it'll be someone's birthday party. And we'll need to say, just from time to time, no, I'm going to be with my people. It's quite liberating sometimes to say no to your boss. I don't know whether you've got used to doing that. No, I'm going to be with my people. Um, or teens, it's, it's absolutely brilliant. Brilliant to have you here. There might be people in your Christian union who, to be honest, you wouldn't want to spend time with, even if you were paid a significant amount of money. I don't know if that's the case in your school. Or maybe you're working and, and the people in your, in, your, in your work Christian group uh, are not the easiest. Sometimes you have to say, I need to identify with my people. I need to do that. It might not look so glamorous as, as all the riches of Egypt, you know. What is it that, um, that Jacob gives Joseph right at the end of chapter 48? A ridge. Do you really think he needs a ridge? But he wants to be with his people, yeah? That's the message that Moses wants the Israelites to know on the way to the promised land. Identify with your people. They're the people of promise. It's okay, God's got this. And, and his people are the ones who will inherit his promises. They're the ones to stick with. But as you do so, the story of Joseph says, you, you need to know one final thing. And that's that you can trust in God's sovereignty over evil. Trusting God's sovereignty over evil. Before Joseph dies, he has something very important to convince us of. And those are the, those are the verses that I've already referred to in chapter 50, verses 19 and 20. And the, the brothers come to, come to Joseph and wonder if they're going to get what's coming to them. They wonder if the universe is ruled by good and bad karma. No, says Joseph, God is in control. Verse 18, uh, verse 19, Joseph said to them, don't be afraid, am I in the place of God? No. No, God is in control. Brothers have just thrown themselves down in front of Joseph for the fourth time in the, in the Joseph account. But Joseph won't take God's job. Am I in the place of God? No, God's in control. Uh, more than that, and, and this is difficult, but this is what Joseph is teaching us. God is so in control 
that he can turn evil things to good. Verse 20, you see that? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. When people try and do evil, we're, we're, we're not afraid to say that their intentions are evil. Um, sometimes it can be quite liberating to say that. Actually, some people are, are trying to do wrong. Um, the God of the Bible, of all people, is able to distinguish right from wrong. There is such a thing as evil in God's world. There are, there are things that we, that we can say are against God's will and not good. But God can repurpose such things for good. Such is his power and his goodness. Now he takes evil intent and turns it to good intent. He brings right out of wrong. He brings goodness out of suffering. Though we may not feel that at the time, I know. I know. Perhaps you can look back on some times in your life that felt painful, where people wronged you, where you were very, very hurt. And it may be, it may not be this side of the new creation, but it may be that you can see some good that God's brought out of it. God is in control and he can turn evil to good. So what's our response? So we're not to fear. God's got this. We're not to fear. So then don't be afraid, says Joseph in verse 21. God's got this. Through the, through the apparent death of, of Joseph's hopes and, and his dreams for a normal life, God has brought peace and life for a whole family protecting them from the famine. And that's just a shadow of the way that the brutal crucifixion of Jesus Christ means that profound evil is turned around for good. Through that terrible death, God intended the saving of many lives from sin and judgment. And say, so we're not to fear. We're not to fear. Like George Muller standing at his wife's great side, we are not to fear. Because as the book of Genesis closes, God's promises are already starting to come true. Can you see that? I like um, Sam Ganji, if you know him, in, in Lord of the Rings. He asks if everything bad is going to start coming untrue. Yes, it is. And at the beginning of, of Genesis, Abraham is told that kings will come from him. Now God has shown how he can raise up a saviour king in Egypt. He can bring saviours to his people. At the beginning of Genesis, there's a dysfunctional family. Now God has shown that he can reunite a family by grace. And right at the beginning of Genesis, do you remember, there is evil that comes into God's good world, a serpent and sin and a, and a curse, God's world is ruined and now we can see that God can take even evil and turn it to good yeah everything bad is starting to come undone God has got this and so this tremendous reassurance for everyone who has experienced evil you know that is not the end of the story and there's, there's incredible comfort for everyone who is prepared to repent of human evil. There is a saviour. 
And there is help for those of us who are struggling to understand human evil. God has a purpose. He's got this. It's not easy news. And I don't understand all the details. But it is good news. Human evil brought God's son down to the grave. But from the experience of Jesus, from the victory that is death, achieved comes the strength to say with George Muller, God is good and he does good. And so ultimately there is nothing to fear. Well, that may raise lots of questions for you. Please do ask them if you want to. We'll have a chance to answer some of those questions later on in the service. But first, let's pray. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that because you are sovereign, because you're in control, that your, your plans are on track uh, and we can trust you. And so I pray, Father, that we would look to the King, your Saviour King. We know that you raised up a Saviour King and in Joseph you raised up a far greater Saviour King in your Son. And we know, Father, you have purposes for your people. I pray that we would identify with your people. I pray, Father, that we would trust you however bitter things feel at the moment. Uh, we would trust that out of the worst of situations you can bring good. And so I pray, Father, uh, that however baffled we might feel, that we would know that your purposes are, are coming to fruition. Their purposes ultimately for our benefit. And so I pray, Father, that we will place our hand in yours and allow you to lead us forwards. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.